welcome to the Arcananth podcast. It's your host, Michael here, and this is the podcast all about human variation, history, evolution, and development. Today, I have another wonderful guest on the show, Professor Ripin Singh Mali. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you today, and where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from uh, Champaign, Illinois. Uh, mm-hmm. I work at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And uh, it's we're on day 26 of uh, isolation mm-hmm. uh, during the pandemic. And so I'm looking forward to this interview as a change up of the daily routine. <laughs> yeah, I was just watching another friend's PhD defense. And it's the most exciting thing that's happened so far in about 10 days. <laughs> what, what positions or a position do you currently hold at the University of Illinois? I'm a professor in the Department of Anthropology um, with affiliations in School of Integrated Biology, the Carl R. Rose Institute for Genomic Biology, and the American Indian Studies Program. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, and have you been, have you been there uh, for a long time? I have now been here for... Uh, 14 years, I can uh, officially consider myself a Midwesterner. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. Um, It's really great to like talk to professors and like um, those with tenure on the show. Like previously, we've had people like Adam Van Arsdale on the podcast and like the things we tend to talk about become quite broad. And I think when you get to a certain point in academia, you sort of like gain a little bit more agency at your institutions and in our scientific associations. So you start to look at the field overall, thinking about like what role you can play in in driving anthropology into different, hopefully positive directions. Would you would you agree with that? What has your experience been on the road towards professorship? Oh, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, so I would say that the first years with just trying to achieve uh, tenure I focused on my research program, and that's kind of what the university suggests you do because they want to show that you're an independent researcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, uh, you can start to be more uh, collaborative and and work with uh, colleagues on on doing broader research and uh, different types of questions. And uh, once you achieve professor standing, then really right now I see my role as um, supporting others in the field and trying to to drive the field in in certain areas that I think would be productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Throughout your career, what kinds of topics within biological anthropology have um, your publications mainly focused on? I'd say the majority of what um, I focused on in in our research is uh, genomic uh, variation uh, and mostly within indigenous peoples of the Americas mm-hmm. and. Using that information in combination with other types of knowledge, like indigenous knowledge, um, historical information, archaeological information, uh, linguistic information, Mm -hmm. to better understand the life ways and history of indigenous peoples in North America. Mm-hmm. When I was looking at your uh, Google Scholar page, for example, like I could see that you were doing a lot of studies looking at genetic variation, um, as you say, like in Native North Americans, and a lot of them were looking at um, mitochondrial DNA, uh, or what scientists sometimes shorten to mtDNA, and others looking at nuclear DNA, 
why chromosomal DNA? What is what is mitochondrial DNA exactly? And uh, for, for us who don't work in genetics. Right. So mitochondrial DNA uh, holds a special place in my heart because that's where I first started doing uh, genetics research. And my dissertation research is focused on mitochondrial DNA variation. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, found within the mitochondria of each cell. And we all remember that the mitochondria is the the powerhouse of the cell that makes energy that we use for our body. Mm -hmm. uh, and the mitochondria is actually a symbiont um, that uh, lives with us uh, that was integrated into, um, into our organisms uh, quite a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and mitochondria is different from the nuclear genome because it's inherited in a different way. It's inherited maternally down the direct maternal line. Mm. So, for example, uh, I am a, um, a biologically a male, and so I will not be able to pass on my mitochondrial DNA to my children, uh, but my wife has passed down her mitochondrial DNA to our children. Mm -hmm. Whereas I have received my mitochondrial DNA from my mother, who received it from her mother, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. and, and so it basically traces your direct maternal line. Uh, and it's also interesting in the sense that it's found in high copy number um, within a cell. Mm -hmm. That was important early on in the field because before next generation sequencing, um, in the 90s and in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. uh, paleogenomics or ancient DNA analysis was mainly limited to j just the analysis of mitochondrial DNA right. because it was found in such high copy number. Mm -hmm. Back in the early 2000s, what about haplogroups? Like I could see a lot of your research had focused on mtDNA haplogroups. What sorts of information about the genetic origins and diversity of Native American lineages can we understand if we understand the concept of haplogroups? Uh, so haplogroups are just a way of organizing the mitochondrial uh, genomes uh, into a way that makes sense phylogenetically. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if certain mitochondrial sequences from individuals share the same variants, they will belong to the same group. And because mitochondrial DNA is only inherited from the mother, it's inherited in a haploid fashion. And that's why it's called a haplogroup. Right. And so some of the early work that uh, we, I focused on, um, uh, including my dissertation work, was identifying haplogroups or mitochondrial variants that were in high frequency in indigenous peoples in North America mm -hmm. and the distribution of those haplogroups within North America in order to try and better understand uh, the early population history of indigenous peoples in North America. Mm -hmm. How do you think that the, the science in paleogenomics has changed uh, since you were doing that early work? Oh, wow. It's, it's transformed tremendously. And over the past 10 years, we have been doing things in my lab that I never thought possible um, early on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, just with next generation sequencing, the field of ancient DNA and paleogenomics is just uh, transformed uh, tremendously. So now... Uh, we can do things like 
look at um, nuclear genomes, which wasn't possible um, before next generation sequencing or Mm -hmm. near impossible before next generation sequencing. And from that, we can obtain uh, much more information about past individuals um, and uh, make inferences that we weren't able to make before about um, the the history of indigenous peoples in in North America. Mm-hmm. Well, what is next generation uh, sequencing? Is that something to do with uh, how technology has advanced and, and that now allows us to look at nuclear genomes? Right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, prior to next generation sequencing, uh, we were focused on using a technique called Sanger sequencing, which is what they used to sequence the human genome um, back in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Sanger sequencing is relatively very slow uh, and very expensive mm-hmm. um, compared to next generation sequencing. So next generation sequencing is kind of made for uh, ancient DNA in the sense that it works well on very short fragments. Hmm. And ancient DNA uh, comes uh, prepackaged as short DNA fragments because it's been degrading. Um, mm-hmm. for hundreds to thousands of years. So it's kind of like the perfect setup uh, for ancient DNA analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and along with the uh, sequencing, where you can now sequence uh, lots of uh, DNA molecules within a sample taken from an ancient individual, uh, you can also look at... Um, parts of DNA damage Uh, and looking at DNA damage is useful because it helps with authenticity of a sample as actually being ancient and not contamination, Mm -hmm. Uh, which prior to next generation sequencing uh, was a big problem in the field. Um, And a lot of the early work in ancient DNA uh, was actually contamination that wasn't actually coming from the host individual. Right. Um, and, and how have you personally found navigating these new changes and have you, having your own career progress in the, in the context of these developments? I assume like the questions that you wanted to ask in the early 2000s, now you're going to be able to get a lot more detail for, for those answers to those questions. Right. So, yeah. So uh, I'd say that after next generation sequencing, uh, I, I did first pursue addressing questions that I wasn't able to pursue just by looking at mitochondrial DNA. Mm-hmm. But also, I think as time went on, I began to ask different questions, not only because of the advances in technology, but also because I saw um, a lack of information and in studies on other areas that I thought would be of interest. And then also, uh, were of interest to the communities that I partnered with. Hmm. For instance? Uh, for instance, early on, there seemed to be lots of focus on uh, the initial peopling of the Americas, and I was doing research in that area on the early history. Uh, but as I went and uh, began to establish mm-hmm. partnerships and doing more of a community-based research-type methodology, I began to have conversations with uh, indigenous community members and and leaders of of tribes and First Nations groups. And 
there was a lot more interest in the impacts of European colonization mm -hmm. that folks wanted to investigate, mm -hmm. as well as other interests in diet of ancestors and understanding disease and the impacts of the environment mm -hmm. on peoples that I partnered mm -hmm. with. Yeah. I switched focus in partnership with uh, various communities to look at um, ancestors of that community, as well as variation in the present day community members, and look at the differences between the two, pre-contact and post-contact, to better uh, understand the impacts of European colonization. Mm -hmm. What what kinds of findings have you and your colleagues been able to uncover about about that? Then, like that adds to what we might have derived about history of indigenous peoples in America that's different from about ten years ago, even. Nah, so I'd say that um, uh, in one area, uh, I've been partnering with the Metlakala First Nation, which is they are located on the coast of British Columbia. Uh, kind of near Prince Rupert Harbor region, if uh, folks know that city. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've been working with this community for over 10 years. Uh, and some of the first things they wanted to investigate uh, with us is finding uh, genetic links or genomic links between present day community members and um, ancestors uh, living prior to European contact. Cool. Uh, so we were able to find a few mitochondrial genome connections where we were able to find very rare mitochondrial genomes present in uh, living community members. In one case, the exact same mitochondrial genome uh, in an ancestor that, was, uh, that lived about 2,500 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and that ancestor had a very closely related mitochondrial genome to an ancestor that lived uh, 5,000 years ago. Mm. And so we were able to see this um, a very close relationship on the maternal line uh, using mitochondrial DNA. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we turned with former graduate student in my lab, um, John Lindo. He's now uh, Dr. John Lindo at Emory University. Mm -hmm. um, and for his dissertation, one of the things that he investigated uh, was uh, looking at the exome of ancestors versus living individuals from the Metlakala First Nation. Mm. Now, the exome is the coding region of the genome. So all the parts of the genome that code for proteins. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to look at about 60 million uh, base pairs of um, um, nuclear DNA mm -hmm. uh, in, um, uh, in ancestors and compare that to present-day community members. Mm -hmm. And we found a few interesting things. Um, the first thing that we identified was just through modeling of population history, a very large population decline that happened um, at, at around the 1800s that seemed to coincide uh, with the smallpox epidemic that happened in that region. Right. Uh, and uh, there was uh, a loss of over 50% of the genetic variation um, 
as a result of that mm-hmm. um, in, in these communities. The second interesting thing that we identified is that there were uh, variants and genes related to immunity. And one variant in particular uh, seemed to be uh, high frequency in ancestors mm-hmm. and seemed to be positively selected um, in the environment of the ancestors. But then after Europeans came in and changed the environment, uh, that variant was no longer positively positively selected and may have been neutral actually or actually negatively selected mm-hmm. um, after European contact. And wow. so it seems that um, the environmental change caused by Europeans actually had a um, had multiple effects on uh, these first nation communities. Mm-hmm. And along with warfare and other changes, uh, disease resulted in the population decline that we saw in First Nations and that region of North America. Mm-hmm. And that was possible because you uh, were trying to look at the exome in particular, which code for proteins that might confer uh, advantages, maybe like fitness advantages. For two reasons. Uh, one was because of using next generation sequencing in order to obtain information about the genome that we normally wouldn't be able to obtain um, prior to next generation sequencing. So the technology was definitely a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other part of it was that we were able to establish a partnership with the First Nation community that I think addressed an, an area of paleogenomics that we have begun to develop, and that is using community-based methods um, to um, make paleogenomics more inclusive and not only address the needs mm-hmm. of scientists, but also address the needs of First Nations community members mm-hmm. and Indigenous community members in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, along similar lines with your work looking at human genomics, I know another uh, organization that you work closely with is the Summer Internship for Indigenous Peoples in Genomics, or uh, SING, S-I-N-G for short. And there's a a SING consortium, of course, made up of SING USA, SING Canada, SING Aotearoa, and SING Australia. You and these training programs recognize and, and try to improve upon the lack of indigenous and aboriginal peoples doing genomics. Can you tell us a bit about how you and your colleagues started looking at this issue and thinking about how to best organize such a program? Right. Yeah. So Singh has been around for uh, almost a decade now. So, um, or I'd say potentially a decade if you consider the early years before we had our, Mm -hmm. our first workshop. Uh, But back in 2011, uh, so indigenous scholars, uh, as well as myself, who's non-indigenous, but works closely with indigenous communities, um, began this program of training uh, indigenous students in genomics research, mm-hmm. and then also um, trying to see how uh, we can use um, genomics in a new way from a new perspective, uh, from an indigenous framework Mm-hmm. Uh, by addressing questions of interest to indigenous peoples um, and using methods of interest to indigenous uh, of interest uh, to indigenous peoples mm-hmm. the workshop was 
really just a great success. And it was the, the first participants over the years that have now matured and have gone on in their careers to being uh, graduate students and postdocs to now being ass assistant professors that have driven the research that we're seeing today and the changes in policy and the recommendations that Singh is making today. Um, but really, it's just been amazing to see how Singh uh, has grown because it started off uh, in the U.S. Um, and the first few workshops were at the University of Illinois, but then we began to expand to other universities in different regions of the U.S., mm -hmm. like in uh, Tucson, Arizona, uh, Seattle, Washington, Austin, Texas, so we can focus on different indigenous viewpoints in different regions of the U.S., and then other founding members of, of Singh, like Kim Talbert, moved to University of Alberta in Canada and founded Singh Canada, along with uh, a few other colleagues. Mm -hmm. And then Maui Hudson, who's in Hamilton, um, New Zealand, founded Singh Aotearoa. And then just last year, uh, a few colleagues uh, founded Singh Australia. And so it's all based on indigenous peoples in that region driving the training and the need. They see a use for genomics, uh, but it's a use for genomics as a tool within an indigenous framework to address questions of interest to indigenous peoples. In the, in the U.S. context, are there examples you can give of how the concerns or, or the frameworks that indigenous scientists have will be maybe different from what you might expect from geneticists working in the field who are not indigenous and were asking questions maybe like 20 years ago? Oh, oh yeah. I would say that um, paleogenomics is the, the perfect perfect example uh, where um, it's just now that I think uh, researchers are, um, paleogenomic researchers are uh, starting to communicate and establish, um, if not partnerships, at least open access of communication with indigenous communities that may be linked to ancestors. Mm -hmm. And again, prior to... Um, involvement of indigenous peoples in addressing or asking what questions can be addressed with genomic research. Most paleogenomics research in at least North America was focused on the initial peopling. It's just only after talking with indigenous peoples and getting their viewpoints incorporated into the research that began to address other areas of research interest like impacts of European colonization, mm -hmm. uh, diets of ancestors through genomic techniques, and other types of questions related to relationships of ancestors that may have been buried in a specific context in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, like from my perspective, growing up, um, out, I'm, I was living in Hong Kong when I, uh, when I was growing up. And so I'm outside of the uh, Australia, I'm outside of the US and Canada, um, even Europe and the UK. And so I was just sort of in my own world where there's a different set of politics um, within science and academia in, in Hong Kong. 
the last 11 years, though, because I've been in the UK and, and generally getting more involved with the field professionally, it has been enlightening and also honestly like infuriating <laughs> and frustrating sometimes to realize that the history of our discipline has been so intertwined with the colonial project that continues today to sort of shut out indigenous peoples from key sectors of economy or society like uh, science or engineering or anthropology. And it just makes no sense to me that a field like anthropology should continue to have so few uh, numbers of indigenous scientists working within it. Yeah, I, it's just, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, it's just, it's something that I didn't learn about in grad school. Um, it's just only through my um, through experience in the field that I began to to learn about uh, really the the colonial interactions that anthropology has had, mm-hmm. um, and just how uh, closely tied t- to colonialism uh, that anthropology is today, and and just how it perpetuates, and mm-hmm. really by interacting with the, in the Sing Workshop every year, and and this is a major topic that we have at the Sing Workshop is uh, decolonizing science and. Um, you know, word use and papers and how uh, that has an impact on decolonizing science. But Mm -hmm. what's more important is just changing the framework of how research is done. And one of the things that um, I'm trying to do um, in my lab and just for the field in general is to bring in different uh, researchers um, with with different viewpoints and different uh, lived experiences in order to um, help make more of an inclusive environment um, so it's not as colonial. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, we have uh, Singh, which is doing a great job um, where we are starting to see indigenous scientists moving from uh, student and postdoc positions into uh, assistant professor and associate professor positions, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then for the American Association of Physical Anthropology, um, along with Susan Anton and uh, Augustin Francis, mm-hmm. uh, we started the IDEAS program, which is Increasing Diversity in Evolutionary Anthropological Sciences, mm-hmm. uh, which is, again, doing the same type of thing. Uh, kind of like sing, but a little bit more compact. And it happens at the meetings where we have a day prior to the meetings where we have idea scholars who are all diverse scholars mm-hmm. uh, come together and just talk about research and ways to more or less decolonize um, physical anthropology. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say in my research, I'm really promoting uh, community-based, using community-based methods. And that is, I think, a way of really working in partnership with, in my example, um, indigenous communities and addressing their research questions and their viewpoints and bringing that into the research. And mm-hmm. and overall, hopefully this will start to make a change in and the type of anthropology that is, is being done today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool and really inspiring. You know, on this show, like just from a professional standpoint and my, my personal standpoint, I just think it's rightfully talked about now, this topic of diversity and who does biological anthropology. 
And yeah, as you were talking about, like around 2015 or, or 2016, up until now, together with Susan Anton and Augustin Fuentes and many others, you have you know, been publishing on and working on the problem of there being pretty obvious lack of black scientists, indigenous scientists, scientists of color working in our field. How do you feel about the, the AAPA being able to continue expanding like this committee on diversity that our association has i'd love to hear your thoughts on that right well i'd, I'd say that i was actually a, a latecomer mm. so uh susan anton and uh augustine fuentes uh they had like you know they established the committee on diversity um a decade ago mm. uh, and there was an ad hoc committee um, for years, I think maybe until Susan Anton became president of the AAPAs and then um, it became a, a standing committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was just um, my experience with Singh, I was able to work with them to establish the ideas program. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite part of the meetings, actually, uh, just because uh, we can get together with uh, a group of young scholars and just talk about how to change the way anthropology is done and, and talk about experiences uh, they've had uh, in academia. Uh, and so it exists as a support network mm-hmm. as well as a way of driving change in the field. And I think just there are a lot of young scholars now coming up uh, in their careers um, to where, you know, we, we don't, it's it can, it's a burden to having this change, right? But it's also something that a lot of young scholars want to engage in and they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's we're going to be seeing, and we have been seeing, uh, some change in, in physical anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the name change, I think, is already uh, a great thing that's... Um, uh, would have happened this year if if it wasn't for the pandemic, but mm-hmm. I think will happen uh, next year. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since someone has um, explained this name change thing. Can you can you help us with that? Ah, right. Well, I mean, I think from what I know, uh, the name uh, was first established in part by Alice Herlichka, who's uh, one of the founders of physical anthropology mm-hmm. in in the U.S. And his research was racist and his approach was colonial. Uh, and so that's kind of echoed on through the decades and in, in the ways that physical anthropologists have, have done things. Um, and I think in a way to um, mm-hmm. just be more inclusive of the types of anthropology that's being done today, uh, biological is much more accurate and gets away from that uh, physical of, I think, mm-hmm. actually looking at skeletal materials, uh, which is where I think anthropology stems from, yeah, uh, or physical anthropology stems from in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. not an expert in the history of physical anthropology, but that's what I know mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, that's good. And I, I feel like this is such a team effort, you know, to, to do initiatives like the Ideas Program or to do the same consortium. How much do you feel that you are all supporting each other in this? I'd say, I mean, overall, it is very much uh, collaborative and we all have to support each other. Um, and the wonderful thing about it is that there has been a tremendous amount of support, um, not only just from 
the scholars that are taking place in seeing and ideas, uh, but also um, there's there's been a fair amount of institutional support, um, mm-hmm. uh, at least for uh, seeing um, a lot of the funding comes from uh, the NIH, uh, National Human Genomes Research Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, but we always, when we we have a, a workshop, we host it at a certain university, and we are able to raise funds at that university from um, various departments, programs, uh, institutes, mm-hmm. uh, just to, to support the, the mission of SING. Um, mm-hmm. And for ideas, uh, we're, we're kind of seeing the same thing. There's, there's a lot of support from the AAPA, um, and the funding comes from the National Science Foundation. And mm-hmm. they've shown a tremendous interest in, in just being supportive and continuing to fund uh, this program. And have you ever like faced any resistance to the idea that the field has a problem and a problem that needs solving? When you're doing all of this work, have you ever encountered people who disagree that this is something that we should be doing? As far as resistance, I think, yeah. I mean, you still run into uh, the occasional uh researcher or um, scientist or academic who doesn't see the need for it or they don't see a problem with the way things are done today mm-hmm. but um, it's it's becoming um, uh, rare to to encounter that in my experience mm-hmm. uh, it's either because I just decide not to um, run in those circles I don't know <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's just um, not as prevalent as it used to be uh, I'm, I'm more of an optimist so yeah so that could I could be a little bit biased <laughs> I feel sometimes engaging people who maybe aren't really open to discussing it or don't really see the point is also a little bit unproductive personally and we, we have other things to do with our time that hopefully inspire more positive changes and it's uh I guess, okay, that other people don't want to. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think the the kind of motto that I'm living by is we'll change the way the field is going with uh, the tremendous amount of support that we have. Mm-hmm. And those who don't want to change will be forced to change, even if they want, if, if they don't want to, if they want to mm-hmm. um, keep up with the field. Mm. I think uh, also we're, we're scientists. And so like one key way uh, at first in, in which you're, you're going to prove that there's a problem is to collect data. And recently there was there's a paper in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, which kind of analyzes the demographic data of our membership. And looking across all AAPA members, uh, at least in the United States, this data really showed that there was a lack of underrepresented minorities that make up our field. And when I first saw that paper, when you, Susan and Augustine uh, published that paper that puts that all of that into numbers, personally, like I felt very much noticed, <laughs> feel seen, because like I'm an Asian scholar and I'm not permitted or encouraged very often to express how my unique background in Hong Kong informs the way that I see the world and how I do science. And I feel a lot of other people, as long as they are um, black, indigenous, or people of color in our field, you know, a lot of us feel this way. And so because the APA have organized uh, so many sessions and workshops, presidential panels to help more people like myself become 
better recognized. I have just been really inspired and moved because this is really helping a lot of people like myself and a lot of my friends and my students see that they do belong in this field if they are interested in staying in it. And, you know, we need that diversity. That's right. Yeah. And it's not, it's not only just diversity for diversity's sake. It's actually, I, I think, and I truly believe that uh, it's, improves the quality of the science that's being produced by having diverse people ask different questions uh, in different ways Mm -hmm. using different methods that haven't been used traditionally uh, in a very usually uniform, um, usually uh, based on people of European descent in the field uh, who are male, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, yeah, the whole idea of objectivity in science The more you look at it, the more you realize that, uh, yes, you want repeatability in data, Mm -hmm. right? But that that doesn't mean that science is is objective. Um, It's very much subjective based on the scientists' lived experiences and their past and how they ask their questions, Mm -hmm. what questions they're asking, uh, why they're asking their questions. Mm -hmm. It's just pervasive in how subjective science is mm-hmm. yeah i have uh, uh recently um Alyssa bader was a graduate student in my lab and she's now um uh, received her degree and she's a postdoc at the sea alaska heritage institute uh, and she wrote a, a piece in uh, a vital topics called um how um, science is subjective and improves uh, science and she shows a perfect example of her study of using genomics um, with the First Nation community mm-hmm. to better understand uh, diet and um, the importance of salmon in that community mm-hmm. ties perfectly to her history as an indigenous person mm-hmm. uh, from the Northwest Coast. Amazing. And in that way, like we're, we're making sure that we are going to increase our knowledge about the human past or about human biology in a way that will um, benefit more than just, you know, privileged subsections of our society. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully it will have, be of use to the communities um, that are, um, that make up the participants of the, of the research that we're doing. Right. Um, so, so I think we're, we've covered a lot of ground here and it's been wonderful to hear about uh, your research and your opinions about some of these issues. Is there anything else on your mind these days that you feel like you'd like to unpack here today so that we sort of best highlight everything that you're doing and that you're passionate about? I'd say we've talked a fair amount about using community-based methods. I think that is the way of the future of the field. Mm -hmm. I mean, scientists can change the way that they behave and the way that they do their science, Uh, but then you still run into these institutional problems like um i think now the gres are just now starting to be not looked upon as something that's useful for grad school admissions but Mm. um for a while our university was still using gres to um, provide as information to provide scholarships to incoming students Mm -hmm. and so uh, really i think the next step is not only to try and change the way scientists behave and the way they work uh, with their research Mm -hmm. um, to be more inclusive, but also to start to change uh, practices of 
uh, institutions and journals and and other um, entities in academia to also um, be more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how do you do that is a good question. I think there are probably a number of ways to do that. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's an important next step. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Alyssa Bader. Like, are you proud whenever your students manage to achieve something, like get a publication out that's really important, succeed in a scientific study or other accomplishments uh, that we can have in our field? Oh, yeah. That's uh, absolutely. I'm very proud. I'm very proud of her accomplishments. Uh, I mean, from... Um, you know, from all of my uh, students that have moved on, um, I, I shouldn't, I mean, there's only a handful, but um, they, they're doing amazing things. And I, um, even though I'm no longer their PhD advisor, I still uh, feel that it's my responsibility to support them in their careers um, as mm-hmm. they move on. Yeah. Uh, and what about uh, yourself? Like, are you proud of the work that you've done uh, since you were a PhD student? Uh, I'd say that I still have the occasional um, time where I go back and read a, a paper that I wrote early on, and I see some of the language in there that um, I wouldn't use today. Um, so I think that shows growth. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, and I... I'm looking forward to continuing my career and uh, supporting people that have moved on from my lab and f- supporting alumni and seeing and ideas and, and trying to change the way science is done mm-hmm. today. If you could uh, say something to sort of like that younger version of uh, Ripon about his uh, future, uh, is that the kind of thing you would give him, give him tips about? <laughs> How, how not to uh, use certain language in papers. Right, yeah, I would say um, be careful about what you use as a model to um, for writing for your own papers um, because mm-hmm. uh, folks in the past that I was really, um, that I really admired, I'm now starting to see how their work um, uh, although still scientifically accurate, uh, didn't promote inclusivity and things that mm-hmm. I value today. What about your kids? Do, do your kids, are they old enough to know uh, what, what dad does? Ah, yeah. So I have uh, seven-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. Cool. Uh, yeah. And so um, they know that, so their mom's a biologist. They know that dad's an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And these days during during homeschool, what we do is we uh, walk around a few blocks in the neighborhood and they take their little charts and we record population density. So they record every time they see a person. And cool. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to graph it at, um, mm-hmm. at the end of the week and, and report it out to the, to the world via Facebook probably. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> so, well, I really want to thank you for making a showing on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you online if people have any questions? Do you have a website or a social media or something? Uh, so, um, I have a, a Facebook page for the Molly Lab at the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and then email. I'm, I'm best. I'm still kind of old-fashioned. I'm best answering uh, questions on email. So molly at illinois.edu. Cool. I have a Twitter account that I was strongly encouraged to sign up for during this last SING workshop. That, mm-hmm. But I've only probably made a few 
posts and only check it on occasion. So that's probably not the best way to contact me. <laughs> and the last thing is that I usually ask the guests to come up with a hashtag. And so uh, listeners will use the hashtag to indicate on social media that they've heard all the way to the end of the interview. Would you be able to come up with a hashtag for us? Uh, how about hashtag make biological anthropology more inclusive <laughs> that's quite that's quite long um <laughs> oh, okay oh they have to be short inclusive bioanthro there you go how about hashtag inclusive bioanthro okay, cool <laughs> so listeners follow the podcast at arcananthpod on all of our social media including facebook twitter reddit and instagram this podcast is made possible by the support of our patrons this podcast remains entirely free so any support for the show is much appreciated. So you can find out how you can do that at patreon.com slash pod. Find out more about Ripon's work on arcananth.com, where you'll also find upcoming episodes uh, along with your iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thanks, Michael. That was a lot of fun. And uh, please come back on the show soon. Great. Thank you. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thank you.